Yeah, tonight I want to continue um, with the practice of studying Vedana, how you feel, um, this most basic way of knowing how you feel. I want to tell you a few things from my own experience um, and practice and then lead a brief practice together. Yeah, so Vedana, you know, it really is a great way to know how you feel because it's so basic. We know if we feel good or bad or just neither, nothing particular. And this knowing how we feel begins from that basic level and everybody can do that. Whereas not everybody can locate and know their emotions. You know, that's something that actually takes practice. I remember when I was young, I was in my 20s and I was in psychotherapy and I was a hippie girl and I really, I mean, I was also a single mom and, and worked and so forth, but I was sort of casual about my appointment with my therapist. And if I didn't feel like it, sometimes I just wouldn't even go and I wouldn't call and I wouldn't um, apologize later or anything. And my therapist said, you know, I think you're mad at me. And I was like, no, no, I'm not mad. I just, I don't know, I just didn't really feel like coming. Long story short, unpacking, looking deeply, understanding what was behind that kind of actually quite disrespectful behavior, I realized I was very mad. It just wasn't something that I knew. And so how do we know what we really are feeling deep down? Beginning with knowing if it's pleasant or unpleasant or neither, it's a great start. And then, and, and you know, it's involuntary. We don't choose uh, to have this feeling. All we can choose is how much awareness we bring to the feeling. And we wake up that sense of awareness, that sense of knowing how we feel through the practices that you've all been doing together, these practices of awareness, of mindfulness. And and we can cultivate more or less ability to pick up the nuances of how we feel. And I think it's, I think it's really important. And especially now, maybe we're at the end of the pandemic, it's still raging in parts of the world. Here in LA, it was, you know, we were the biggest hotspot around the holidays. And now we're emerging and things are gonna open up in a couple of weeks. During the pandemic, we had lots of reasons not to uh, examine our purpose in this life, I would say. You know, there was, there were COVID precautions, there were keeping families safe, there was livelihood worries and childcare and schooling challenges and either no time to consider how do we really feel in the midst of all of this? Or there was too much lonesome time, isolated, um, you know, isolated from our sources of support and inspiration. And that doesn't enhance the ability to be mindful, self-compassionate, creative, or anything else. But now it's late spring. I think of it as time for spring cleaning of the mind and heart. You know, it's like, uh, take the carpets outside, shake off the dust, um, the dust of anxiety, the dust of nervousness, um, uncertainty, all the shaky feelings that humans have that were really amplified, I think made a lot stronger. I know for me at least, and probably for you too, I'm hearing it from lots of people during the pandemic. So this spring is a time for new beginnings, to uh, 
emerge, begin to emerge, and to look at what does matter most in our life, you know? And basically respond to all these life experiences with either moving toward them, right? If they're pleasant and we like it, there's liking in the mind and we move towards it, then may, we may actually begin to grasp or cling or crave it. Um, but we just simply move toward it. And if it's unpleasant and we don't like it, we move away from it. Sometimes with you know varying degrees of aversion or even anger and hate. Um, or we freeze and numb around it. And uh, I certainly have experienced some of that during all of the protests and uh, social unrest that's been happening in our country. Uh, but all of this is different from what we can do when we can rest in a feeling and be aware of it and allow it to just be there in the openness of heart and mind and to flow through us. So this is a quote that I love um, from years ago from Martha Graham. And she says, there's a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through you into action. And because there's only one of you in all time, this expression is unique. And if you block it, it will never exist through any other medium. It will be lost and the world will not have it. And then I love this part. She says, it's not your business to determine how good it is. And by it, we can talk about our feelings. Um, how good is any feeling? How valuable? It's not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable, nor how it compares to other expressions. It's your business to keep it yours clearly and directly. And I would say to feel it clearly and directly to keep the channel open. And this ability to feel things clearly and directly that we hone and cultivate and pretty tenderly with our mindfulness practice and meditation, um, it's important because I call it the freedom, the freedom to know how you feel. Because when you know how you feel and you're aware of it, you have just that little space, right, between the skull and the brain, that space of mindfulness uh, where you can then choose to respond perhaps more wisely um, with less, you know, less being admired in emotional reactivity. And that's a huge freedom. I would like to invite you, I love that very simple grounding practice um, that we did, uh, extending our connection to all beings at the beginning. And I'd like to do uh, a brief practice with you. It, this practice comes from a 13th century Zen master named Dogen Zenji, and he called it taking the backward step. And he, I'm going to paraphrase. <laughs> Basically, he was saying, when we move towards an experience with all our agendas for it, right? With the, you know, determined by whether we like or dislike or couldn't care less about that experience. When we move toward that experience, you know, uh, this is actually diluted. This is, this is not, this is not the way to connect with reality. 
And he says, when we can step back and allow the experiences to come to us and flow through us, pleasant, unpleasant, neither, this is awakening. This is what awakening is. So I want to invite you to just be in whatever posture is comfortable for you. It's a framework for your body that you can just be quiet and enjoy for a few minutes. And just tune in to your breath in the body. Noticing with the ebb and flow of the breath, is it pleasant? Is it smooth or deep? Do you like it? And then notice maybe the texture is kind of choppy, a little rough or ragged as you breathe. Is it unpleasant? Would you rather it be different? Just noticing clearly directly how it is for you in this moment, how you feel. And when you notice the mind has wandered away into the past, whatever came before this moment. Or into the future, whatever may follow this moment. Just shift your body back, maybe an inch, maybe a couple inches. Just stepping back into this posture of receptivity. Receiving the moment. Receiving the breath. Receiving the feeling, the tone, the emotion, whatever may be flowing through your mind stream your heart. Whatever feeling may be appearing or vanishing, this is the truth of this moment. 
this is being present. Awake. Fully alive. And knowing how you feel means you've touched into this dimension of presence, of awakening, of awareness, and from here you can you can contemplate the feelings, wishes, regrets, loves sorrows, all the dimensions of being a human being. So meditation is not tipping toward, anticipating, trying to change what's going to happen or what's happening. It's just being this receptivity, the host to all the feelings that are the guests in our lives. Just showing us how to step back, even with the body, when you shift your body back, can feel a subtle relaxation. a simple way of being present and at peace in this life. So this way we're discovering together that place of presence. And, you know, you can say, I've seen it. I've felt it. I've acknowledged it. Uh, I've allowed it all to flow through me just for these few minutes. And it's a tremendous freedom not to be caught in any one state, you know, with that feeling of no exit, right? Um, and this seeing, it, it frees our hearts. It can bring tremendous compassion for just what it's like to be a human being in this life, particularly now. Um, and so directly touching our own feelings, if I can directly touch my feelings, then I can also understand how it is for you and for other people. We can do this for each other. And when we do this for each other, we help each other calm our hearts with steady presence. 
Right now I have a beloved friend who is doing her dying. And the ability to know my own sadness, my own upset that this is happening, that she's being lost from my life, allows me to not be so caught in that, that I can't just sit with her and simply be with her and maybe hold her hand. And so this is how we find the freedom of knowing how we feel, of touching this other dimension of experience that we call awareness and of really inhabiting the nobility, the dignity, um, you know, the beauty of being who we are. So this is what I want to share with you this evening and uh, now making room for my beloved, the beauty of who he is <clears throat> to share with you. <clears throat> Thank you, Trudy, dear. Hi, I too wanna add my appreciation for Oxford Mindfulness Center, for Willem and for all that you're doing over this, especially this last year and more with the pandemic. Uh, it's a way of supporting the hearts and minds of so, so many people with practices that really make a difference. And in this series, which is dealing with feelings as, as Trudy introduced and we were told this is the kind of the focus of the teachings for this time. Mindfulness of feelings is absolutely central to the process and the practice of awakening, just as Trudy's been talking about, in these two dimensions. First in the primary feeling, of pleasant or neutral or unpleasant in our reactivity to it, and for those of you who've studied Buddhist teachings or psychology in what is called the cycle of dependent origination, which is a way or, or interdependent origination, which is a way that shows how consciousness and mind gets entrapped in the world. The key link there for freedom is the link of feeling. It's exactly what Trudy was teaching that when we become aware of the sense inputs that come to our body and then notice whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neither. Um, that's the moment that's the gateway to freedom of heart. Now with that, with these feelings, there also arises in the same way, a whole array of secondary feelings that we might call emotions. And these emotions, like the primary feelings we talk about, can catch us up. We can get either lost in them or afraid of them or, or ignore them, just as we can the primary sense of liking and disliking and so forth. And they've been heightened, as Willem and Trudy talked about, by the pandemic, the level of anxiety or fear, or in some cases, grief or confusion, and not just by the pandemic, but by also the things that we swim in in our collective worldwide connections, both the beauty of it and the dilemmas of climate change and the calls for social justice. These all touch us in 
visceral ways they touch our hearts and our lives. How do feelings fit in with these? My friend Vivek Murthy, who is the Surgeon General of the US, so he's the Chief Medical Officer for the United States, said that more than half of what comes into the hospitals and clinics in our country is based on emotional difficulties and not just the physical difficulties of the body. And you can sense that, you know, in what you know, the, the uh, levels of whether it's depression or loneliness or anxiety or fear or, or all the kinds of things that people deal with that create so much suffering in their lives. So it's there in us and it affects our body and our relations to one another when feelings are not understood and dealt with, when there's underlying emotions that are not included in our well-being. And even in the body politic, maybe especially so. So one of our famous Supreme Court justices in the US, William O. Douglas said, at the Supreme Court level where I work, telling the truth, 90% of our decisions are how we feel. The other 10% is our mind used to rationalize and justify those decisions. So if it's true at the Supreme Court level, it's true in how we operate as human beings. So then what does mindfulness have to offer us with these emotions and these secondary feelings, as well as the primary ones? The first thing that happens as you train in meditation and mindfulness and you started you know, this class with Willem and then with Trudy doing so, is as you sit, if you sit quietly and begin to attend, by staying present, you begin to do what the neuroscientists call expanding your window of tolerance. Ordinarily, if we're a little bit bored or restless or hungry or upset and so forth, we run away from those feelings or we try to get them go away or we ignore them. We open the refrigerator, we distract ourselves. We do all these things because they're too hard to bear. And I've been talking to a teenager that I'm very close to in extended family who got the first job. And she said at one point, oh, it's, it's really boring. As if that was like, the worst possible thing that could happen to a teenager. Yes, there's horrible things in the world, but being bored, I don't know what to do. I don't know if I can tolerate it. So we all have that. We have things that we can't, that we can't stay with. And in the training that I received as a monk with my teacher, Ajahn Chah, I remember going to him because I was starting to get irritated by some of the actions and ways that the monks in the monastery were acting and treating me. And I come from a family with a very uh, violent history. My father was, uh, he had mental problems and he was angry and abusive. He would beat my mother. He could have angry outbursts at any time. So I decided I would be peaceful. I would never get angry like him because he was the model of the cause of suffering. And I got to the monastery and then this irritation and with it, anger started coming. I thought, I'm a peaceful person. I'm a monk now. I'm not I'm going to be peaceful. I told my teacher. And I said, what do I do about this? It's starting. To be... And he said, good. I said, good. He said, yeah, anger, you need to learn about it. Go back to your little hut 
in the jungle. It's the hot season, close the windows, it's a tin roof, wrap yourself in all your robes. And if you're gonna be angry, do it right. Sit there in the heat and be angry and notice the stories it tells and feel what it's like in the body, like a volcano and you sit in the middle of it until something happens, which of course what happens is that it changes, but also you learn a lot from it. And I realized that I could tolerate my anger and I didn't have to be so afraid of it. And I neither had to suppress it, nor did I have to get angry at everybody. I could actually just feel it. And once I had done and it moved through, then I could decide, was there something I needed to say to protect every, myself or people's well-being or not? Same thing with fear. We had a, a, a ride, he and I were riding and invited to this remote monastery on the Cambodian border. And we almost got in an accident in this narrow road and this huge bus came by and just about drove us off the road. And I saw his knuckles were white. And finally, we kind of got back on the road and he looked at me and he smiled. He said, scary ride, isn't it? And there was no denial of the feelings that it was scary. It just was what it was. And in the same way, the meditation invites us to experience our joy and well-being. And some of us are so loyal to our suffering that when happiness or joy comes, it's unfamiliar or uncomfortable or un-American or un-British or whatever it happens to be. And the ability to experience, to not hold our breath, but to allow the beauty and joy that also comes through us. Like the Martha Graham quote that Trudy read, brings us alive in a new way. And I hear this from all the people that have, you know, or many people who've been on retreats or classes that I've taught over these decades from a, a little middle school, a letter from a middle school kid written in kind of shaky, you know, 12 year old language saying, I didn't think much of the meditation when we learned it, but now my mom and I were getting in fights all the time and I go outside and I sit and I remember you taught me to breathe and just be there. And somehow it helps me be with all my frustration and anger. And then I go in and I can talk to my mom and it's not so bad. And I think, hallelujah, this, this really helped, this really worked. Uh, but I also think of a friend Arturo Bihar, who uh, was one of the key figures at Facebook, um, one of the vice presidents, I believe. And part of his job was to deal with the difficulties and complaints that came in. And he said, of course, when you're in an organization as big as Facebook, you don't have a complaints window with 20 complaints coming in you know, as you might in a store. He said, with a billion users, we could get a million complaints in a short period of time. And as he began to look, he said, I realized that many of the complaints were problems that people had with one another, not just with the content of what we did, but somebody posted a picture of my children and the how dare them do that, or Somebody wrote this thing about me that seems unfair and I'm upset. And at first we just sent out a policy, you know, if it's lewd or lascivious or destructive, you have to stop. But everybody was still unhappy. And I realized that there was something different that had to happen. So I began to experiment 
And I wrote to these people who were in conflict or upset. And I said, have you tried communicating with each other? And they started to do it, but sometimes it made it worse. He said, all right, let me help you communicate with each other. And he sent the next instruction out. Why don't you tell them what upset you, how it made you feel, and then what your intention is in writing them. And so people started to say, well, you posted this picture of my child and I felt like I was misused. And, and I wrote to them and I said, when you tell them how you feel, also ask them what was their intention. And the response would come back, oh, I'm sorry you were upset. I posted it because your child is so beautiful and you look so good in it. I thought it would look great. And I apologize. And the ability to hear each other's feelings and to sense each other's intention and to listen to each other, to know what you feel and someone else feels, started to take what was conflict and turn it in many cases into peace or into well-being. And as Arturo said at one point, I feel like I'm able to teach emotional intelligence and conflict resolution to a billion people. <laughs> uh, so this is really what mindfulness offers to us as well. And the way we learn to do it is to acknowledge what's present, to allow the feelings as Trudy talked about because they flow through us. And I have when I teach a list of 500 emotions that I sometimes read out loud so people will get tuned to them starting with the A's, affectionate, angry, apoplectic, amorous, appreciative, aggressive, apoplectic, abandoned, adrift, alive, afraid, affronted, aggravated, aggrieved, apologetic, amused, arrogant, attuned, and it goes on to the bees, bored, blissful, blissful, betrayed, brave, brokenhearted, bonkers, blank, or creative, calm, confused, crazy. And you start to hear that we have this river of feelings that come through us. So I invite you now, let's practice together a little bit for a few minutes. Again, yeah, move your body just from you know, 30 seconds, because you've been sitting watching the Zoom and we want to somehow bring body and mind together. And it's not that easy connecting to the screen. And let your eyes close gently. And with your eyes closed, feel even seated there how your body wants to move. You know, maybe let your head move in a circle to release what's tight or shake out your hands or relax your shoulders. Take a few deep breaths. Begin to notice how you feel having done so, keeping your eyes closed. Is the sense of ease growing? Do you feel more settled? Maybe as you get quiet, you realize that there's anxiety underneath because you've got a lot of things to do as soon as this show is over. Or maybe there's frustration. 
or something, you wish we would spend more time explaining the Buddhist, deep Buddhist psychology or longer meditation. Or maybe you're just peaceful and quiet and don't feel much. And then people would say, I'm not feeling much. But that's a feeling too. Emptiness is a feeling. Numbness is a feeling. And what you're beginning to do is notice the inner weather, the movements or the flow of feelings from calm to ease to anxious or affectionate or apoplectic or aggrieved or adrift, all those emotions, amused or aggravated, you feel them. And what you can do is recognize them first and allow them. And in allowing, you can even invite them to open as my teacher had me do with anger, to expand the heart the capacity of tolerance, the window of tolerance, so that calm opens larger. Or anxiety has all the space that it needs to be felt fully. Or grief and sadness. And as you allow the ones that are difficult for you to open, then the question is, well, what will happen if I get overwhelmed by them? And so I ask you, how do you touch them? With fear of these feelings? With contraction or confusion? Now bring a tender compassion, a kindness. Because all these emotions in many ways are trying to protect you and help you. Anxiety, make sure you're safe. Longing, make sure that your heart is touched and filled. Desire, hunger, they're human. Say thank you to them. And notice just now, whatever you're feeling. And what happens if you say with kindness, appreciation, thank you. Thank you for letting me feel everything. Letting me feel you. And you gradually start to trust the space of mindfulness itself, of mindful, loving awareness. The backward step that Trudy spoke of. You become the witness, the loving witness of it all. That can feel the feelings and emotions as they rise, feel them in the body, in the heart, 
in the stories they tell. And as they over time pass away and a new wave of another feeling arises. And as the mindful loving awareness becomes your refuge, your place to witness with kindness, you become less afraid of the feelings, less caught in the ones, and then the kindness and goodness of your own heart, your best intention, your wisdom can come forth even in difficulty. Rest in loving awareness. It is your own refuge, your true nature, your home. And so now I believe we have a bit of time for questions to Trudy or to myself with pleasure. Thank you, Trudy. Thank you, Jack. I'm sure that teaching will really resonate for everybody. Um, as we're listening, we've got some great questions and reflections, and I'll, um, I won't, we won't be able to get to all of them, but I'll get to as many of them as I can, and I'll try and theme them. There, there are two questions, which I think I can just bring together, if I, if I might, um, Trudy and Jack. The first is, um, which emotions would you consider primary, and how can we differentiate primary from secondary emotions? What impact primary emotions have on us, our reality and well-being? Is the primary feeling we experience bodily, then Vedna of this, then emotion? Can primary feeling be emotion? And I know there's a lot there, but somebody else um, has written, and I just wonder whether I can just tag this on the end. I disagree, it's not always easy. Sorry, I disagree, full stop. It's not always easy to know how we feel. There is a drive sometimes to get it right and to be sure, and this leads to uncertainty and stress. These are beautiful questions. I'll take the second one. We don't always know how we feel, and it's not about getting it right. The feeling that question that describes is one of not knowing or of confusion, and that also is a feeling. It takes some time and it's one of the beautiful things in mindfulness that we gradually learn to know what we feel. And sometimes when I work with people, I suggest they get a little notebook, a feeling journal, and over the course of a week or two, just write down as many feelings as they can notice. And it starts to tune us to that. And then the first question of what's primary and what's secondary, my own experience is that that's for me not been so helpful. The Buddhist, very central teaching, as Trudy talked about, that things will be either pleasant or unpleasant or neither so, pleasant, neutral or unpleasant, 
is really critical because we grasp what's pleasant and resist what's unpleasant or ignore what's neither. So knowing that is helpful. But beyond that, I think our real inquiry is what are we actually feeling? And it's true, as uh, Vivek Murthy said, you know, not just we individually, but as cultures, we're not taught to value and even be aware of what we feel. So mindfulness invites us to do so. Trudy, did you want to come on? Come in, or shall I move on to the next question? Well, no, you can move on. I think that's pretty. That's pretty complete. What Jack okay. said, and I would just add, keep it simple. You know, that's helpful to me too. So the next one I want to pick is, I think, related and perhaps building um, on the question we've just had. So the questioner says, "Thank you both." That Martha Graham quote really resonated with me. I used to gravitate to it a lot, especially the line to keep the channels open. How do you think that theme can be integrated into our daily practices to ensure we are keeping the channels open and extend from not just being um, mindful or aware? Okay, <clears throat> yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And um, I love all the parts of that quote, especially not comparing our states, you know, to some ideal state and, and keeping the idea that you would keep the channels open 24 seven, that's just not how it works. We go through periods of expansion and openness where the channels are open and things can flow. And then there's times of contraction and tightness and the channels are definitely feeling blocked. And the, the ultimate keeping the channel open is keeping the awareness of both the remembering to be mindful, the forgetting all about being mindful, the moments of openness and expansion that we generally like, the moments of, we could call it the dying side of life, of disappointment or contraction, um, painful things that we feel that we don't like. Keeping the channels open to me means as much as possible, being aware of that full range, you know, the whole spectrum of, of human experience. It doesn't mean that I'm in this beautiful state of flow all the time. It means that I can work with the oscillations, you know, with the, um, with the rhythm of, of life. Uh, and, and also, and this is tricky, you know, to not look at, uh, the times where it feels blocked or I feel stuck uh, or I've forgotten. I mean, I was meditating and paragraphs went by, excuse me, of a story and I didn't even notice, but to really be able to welcome all of it and say, okay, okay, this is what was happening. And this is perfectly, um, you know, part of the rhythm of life. And with that attitude of it's okay, to me, that relaxes and actually paradoxically opens the channels, you know, when we're not struggling against the blockage or berating ourselves for being stuck um, and stuff like that. So I don't know if that's helpful, but that's how I look at it for my own life and my own practice. Thank you. Um, we were very lucky to have somebody <clears throat> from your corner of the world speak to us recently. I'm sure you know him, David Trelevan. And the next question is from somebody, I think, Trudy, who resonated with your story about um, a friend who is dying. And it goes as follows. Um, 
a death close to me has affected me deeply and I'm not sure how to use mindfulness to deal with it. How can I stop sadness from overwhelming me so much of the time, please? Am I missing something? Because I feel the huge sadness in mindful, aware, in mindful awareness, but it still feels so overwhelming. How not to be caught by deep suffering of others ourselves in certain moments? You can start. Yeah, I'll start and Jack will add. First of all, I got tears in my eyes listening to your question because, Mm -hmm. of course, I'm resonating with my own friend and the loss of her and and just resonating with you. And I'm sorry for your loss. That's the first thing. I'm really sorry. And this, too, is part of life. And in terms of that incredible flood of sorrow that does feel like we'll drown in it, you know, and grief is like that, right? You can be going along okay, maybe driving a car somewhere and then you hear a song or there's a sight or a smell, um, see somebody who reminds you of your friend and it just takes you by the ankle and pulls you under again. And that's okay. That you aren't gonna drown, I promise you. And you can let yourself be overwhelmed. And that too, you can be mindful, not just sad, sad, but overwhelmed, overwhelmed, drowning, drowning, because you aren't actually, and nobody actually, you know, drowned of, in an emotion, really drowned. We have an ocean here we can drown in, but not our feelings. And in the deepest sense, um, how to be present with intense suffering of oneself or another, uh, I don't know how David Trelevin talks about it exactly. Um, I have his book, but I don't remember. But I do know that for me, sometimes just being able to touch into the intensity of that sadness or sorrow or the flood of whatever emotion it may be, um, to touch into that intensity and then to take a break, to just step back, to take a breath, to not feel that I have to be in the middle of it all the time to figure it out or to make it go away or to do something to it like that. And then the other thing is to say, okay, this is what it's like to be a human being who is grieving. And in that moment, you can connect. I can connect with everyone who has lost a loved one. And especially during this pandemic, when people, you know, we lost loved ones couldn't even be with them and hold their hand or squeeze their hand. Uh, Very intense suffering this is. And mostly I would counsel you to notice when the mind starts to slip into regrets or if onlys or guilt or, you know, why didn't I spend more time? I didn't realize any of those kinds of thoughts. Um, I call it crooked grief. It's another form of grief but it's actually in the long run easier to bear that pure, intense, sometimes very overwhelming uh, sadness than to sort of lift into the thinking mind, which seems like it might be a way to escape it, but it just doesn't work. Um, Jack, you might wanna add something? Just a little bit to say, we live at least in the US, maybe UK as well, in cultures um, that don't honor grief very well. Right. And people will say, get over it. Um, but you may need to grieve for a year. You, it had, grief has its own seasons, as Trudy is saying. And it's part of our life that needs to be 
respected. And it also doesn't mean you should sit and meditate. Again, sometimes that's completely overwhelming. What you need to do is walk in the forest or you know, watch a movie or, or uh, create a ritual for yourself that each, you know, make an altar, light a candle, connect as Trudy says to all those in the world who are grieving with you at this time, let your tears flow so that it opens your heart to not just your own grief, but to so many who carry in the big heart of compassion, um, what it is to be human. And all of these are completely natural. Uh, and in a certain way, you can't grieve wrong, uh, no matter what the outside world says. It's just hard and it's its own tears. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it has its own rhythm, like everything else, it has its own seasons to bear. And your tenderness toward yourself in yes. all this probably is as important as anything. Yeah, take good care of yourself. Do sweet things for yourself and do change the channel, like Jack said. Sometimes the channel, it's so open. We need to change that channel. And that's okay too. Um, yeah, just take take good good care of yourself. And in a way, I think all of what we've been trying to articulate is what it means to accept the, our humanity, that we're that we're just human. We're perfectly human in that way and to hold our perfect humanness with mindful loving awareness no i think i just um also want to thank you for caring about these things for your own uh sincere practice for wanting to work with your own mind and heart so you can be a blessing in this life and be of benefit um, thank you for that. Thank you for your practice.